You turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. This morning we're going to be talking about life-changing uh, prayer. Uh, before we get to our text, um, uh, uh, one other announcement. Uh, on the 20th of November, so that's a Sunday, uh, at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, Carlos and Michelle Dodson are opening up their home, and I'm going to be sharing a little bit with uh, especially our members, but really anybody that's invited um, our strategic planning is shaping up to look like for 2012. Uh, every year, as we look to the, to the next calendar year, we take some time uh, to discern God's movement among us, where we are, and where God is calling us uh, to go. So I've the privilege to have lots of one-on-one conversations over the past few weeks, just uh, asking people questions, how is God speaking to our church? And I want to share uh, my own heart with you on the 20th. Uh, uh, very specific things that I believe God is calling us to be out to focus on, to give our attention to in 2012. Um, and I, and I want to hear from you. Uh, so I want to share a little bit with you and then just have a conversation together as a church. How does this sound? How is the Holy Spirit moving among us? Uh, what are some of the challenges that our church will be facing as we move into 2012? So on November 20th at 4 p.m., if you can just remember that, would love to have you come out for about two hours. We'll have a conversation, listen to each other, and, uh, and hopefully begin to get a sense of how uh, God is pulling us forward into the next year. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. I hope that you can be there for us. Um, okay, let me make one other announcement. I was, I was going to wait till next week, but um, you realize, of course, that we're less than two months away from Christmas? Yes. You realize that? Is that good news or bad news for you? I don't know. Like, everyone's like, ugh. Like, That's good. Um, uh, the, 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 the Christian church throughout history often has, has kind of uh, marked a, a church calendar uh, that's been a little bit different than the calendar that we celebrate. It's, it's marked by significant events uh, that, that have shaped the church, uh, theological uh, beliefs, but historical events as well. And so we know some of these, like Easter. You know, we celebrate Easter. There's a season called Advent that leads up to Christmas. Advent actually begins on Sunday, November 27th. So it's the last Sunday of this month. I'm telling you this because if you're like me, the, the weeks before Christmas are not exactly peaceful for many of you. Am I right? Um, and, and so here's the real ironic thing is that throughout uh, history, the church set aside these, these seasons, sometimes for fasting, like Lent, and other times for feasting which would be Advent, as we get ready to celebrate the incarnation of God, of God taking on flesh and being born in a manger. The church has set aside weeks, saying we need to prepare our hearts for that. This is a feasting time of year. Uh, And yet, for most of us, Advent is characterized by stress, by full calendar, by um, (laughs) spending too much money on presents that we don't really want to give people. Um, and what, am I, what am I saying? I'm saying, could, you, could we be intentional together this year yes. as a church? Could, could we make some decisions now and in the next couple of weeks, before we actually get to the beginning of Advent, November 27th, could, could, you, could you think through a little bit? Look at your calendar. Block off some time. Time when you want to just have friends over to feast together in celebration of Christ's coming. Uh, maybe make some decisions about how much money you're going to spend this year on Christmas. It's, maybe it needs to be less than you typically spend. Be intentional is what I'm saying. So that Advent season can actually be one of celebration for you. Yes? yes. 
rest for you, enjoyment for you, feasting, uh, all these things which prepare our hearts to welcome the coming of Christ, okay? If you need practical ideas of how to do that, I've got a thousand for you. I can plan your life really, really well. So just come find me. I'll let you know. Maggie and I sat down and had like a, it's probably like a one hour, hour and a half conversation two weeks ago just about this. Just like we said, okay, just, let's just look at what is, what is Advent? What are we not going to do? And what are we going to do? And how will this be a rejuvenating time for our family? How will this be a Christ-centering time for our family? How will we get to, to, to be uh, with our community and not just trying to grab moments here and there, but how can we be fully present to each other and to our community? So again, I, I'm happy to plan your life if you want me to do that. I'm guessing you can do that on your own. Uh, we'll talk about life-changing prayer today from Nehemiah chapter 1. Uh, as your pastor, I noticed that most of us, and I include myself, are overwhelmed uh, by, by, our, by our lives. Um, most of us live uh, much of the time as overwhelmed people. And I see this kind of playing out in two different ways. One is maybe we could just call it like our personal lives. Um, th- these are the things that we have direct contact with or the ability to influence or change. And as I listen to you, I notice there are these things in our personal lives that feel overwhelming to us. And so these might be uh, 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 the inability to change something lives that we know needs changing, or addictive behavior that we just can't seem to shake, or a toxic relationship that we know is not good, but mm, just kind of has a hold on us. Stale marriages, generational dysfunctions, shame about our past, fear about our future. There are these personal things that feel overwhelming to us. And and then there, there are these other things, and I don't have a nice label for this, but these are the bigger things. These are the things out there in the, in the world. These are the, the things that we don't feel like we have personal connection with, as if we can't just on our own change these things. We're aware of things like human trafficking or our unjust school systems where depending on where you live, you'll have a better or worse education. Immigration and deportation policies break some of our hearts as we see families torn apart and children being placed in foster care systems as their parents are sent back to another country. I read this week that the response rate to 911 calls is vastly different depending on what neighborhood you live in in Chicago. These, these are big things. These are the kind of overwhelming things. Famine, Somalia, shortage of jobs in our city. Would you agree these are big things? Feel out of our grasp, out of our ability to change, to really impact in some way. And yet when we notice them for a minute, they become very overwhelming. At least uh, they do to me. And as I listen to you, these are the kinds of things I hear talk about. I hear some of you talk about these more personal things and others sort of these these bigger picture realities in our world that feel overwhelming to us. For many of us, it's simply an assumption that we are going to go through our lives feeling overwhelmed. And, and, and maybe some of you question that. You're like, no, not me. I'm doing great. I'm not overwhelmed. I'd like to suggest that, that apathy is just another way of being overwhelmed. That being detached It's another way of being overwhelmed. Choosing to look away from your baggage, from your stuff, from your history, from your past, from your family is just another way of being overwhelmed. 
turning away from the evening news to watch something more entertaining is just another way of being overwhelmed. Are you with me? And again, I think many of us have just succumbed to this idea that we are going to go through most of our lives as people who are overwhelmed. But what we see in Nehemiah today is that it doesn't have to be this way. That this is not a foregone conclusion that this is how we experience life. There is, in fact, a way to live in the face of overwhelming circumstances in which we do not succumb to our circumstances. There is a way to live that presses into the overwhelming circumstances and responds with courage and with resolve. There is a way to live that does not ignore the problems in our lives or in our world or in our neighborhoods, but instead responds with a kind of prayer that will change lives. And this is what I want us to see this morning. Let's pray. God, I pray that you will open your scripture now through the power of your Holy Spirit and speak to us. I pray especially for those today who are overwhelmed by life, who are overwhelmed by personal circumstances or who are overwhelmed simply by how our world seems to work. I pray for a word of hope this morning from your scriptures. I pray that your Holy Spirit would show us today that we are not at the mercy of our lives, of this world. I pray that you will open our imagination up to another way to live. A way to live with courage in the face of an overwhelming world. A way to live that participates in what you are doing in our lives and in our world, a way of living that will radically change us as we follow you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3. Nehemiah received some news, and it goes like this. Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Now, now in order to contextualize this for just a minute, you need to know that over 40 years before this happens, before these words are spoken, 40 years earlier, Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah, is besieged, is surrounded by the army of Babylon, and they are basically starving the people to death inside of the city until they finally surrender. When Babylon finally conquers Jerusalem, the Jewish people who are living there have really three options. One, to escape, to flee to Egypt in the south. The other is to remain, to remain in a broken down, destitute, defeated city and try to make their way. And the third wasn't really an option, actually. Certain people just were chosen, were selected, were exiled. These tended to be people of the most wealth, the most means, the politically connected, were taken away from Jerusalem and exiled into Babylon. Now, a few years later, about a decade or two later, Babylon itself is, uh, is conquered by Persia. And Persia has a, a different foreign policy. Rather than 
forcing people into exile, they allow people to go back to their home country, to their homelands if they want to. Do we have a, a, a map? I know some of y'all are into maps. I like maps, right? So you can kind of see, can you see Jerusalem? It's just underneath Palestine there, just to the right of the Mediterranean Sea. This is the city that's besieged. And then you can see the, the massive Persian empire stretching off into the east. And these are where the Jewish people are exiled. But when, again, when, when Persia comes to power, they come to the Jewish exile in, 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 in Babylon and they say, you can return home if you want. You can, you can go home. Some do. Some Jews make the long, dangerous trip back to Jerusalem. They find some of their countrymen who had stayed there just trying to get by, trying to make it. The walls are crumbled. The city is a mess. There is no temple anymore. And so they, they, they work their hardest and they, they build a temple. But it's, it's hard to go back to Jerusalem. They're under attack regularly from the, the, the surrounding uh, uh, countries, from uh, Persian authorities. It's, it's just hard to be in Jerusalem. And this is the news that Nehemiah receives. Nehemiah receives the news from his family that this is what's happening. The city is in this disarray that the people are being attacked, that they're hopeless. And so we might say that Nehemiah at the beginning of this book is facing two crises. One more personal. How do I respond to my family who is in need? And one more global. What do I do about the city? What do I do about my people who have no leader, who have no protection? So what I want us to do is walk through chapter 1, and I want to show you a few different moves that Nehemiah makes. He charts a course for us, I think, in the face of overwhelming circumstances. He, he's an example for us that should we choose to follow will give us a way of facing our own overwhelming circumstances in a very uh, different way than most of us generally do. So the first thing that Nehemiah does when he receives this news from home, the city is collapsed, the people are in trouble. The first, the first thing that leads to this information is he, he simply asks a question. It, the, the reason he knows this is because Nehemiah asked. Let's begin in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, when I was in the citadel of Susa. In other words, when I was in the capital of Persia, when I was exiled, at this time this happened. Hannah and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with the other men. In other words, one of my brothers made the long trip back from Jerusalem with this report. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. He questioned them. And we already saw the answer that he received, the bad news from back home that he received. 
Some of you know the book of Nehemiah. And so you know that throughout this book, Nehemiah is going to risk his life before the most powerful person in the world. You know of the traveling, the dangerous road back to Jerusalem. You know that he's going to rally a discouraged and scattered people. You know that he's going to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He will repel threats and character assassination attempts. He will restore the Israelites' corporate identity and purpose. He will do all of this. But first, he simply asks a question. How are things back home? This is the starting point for Nehemiah. Why do I point this out? It just seems like a natural thing to do, to ask this sort of question. But the reality is, is that Nehemiah could have remained willfully ignorant. He didn't have to ask this question. You see, Nehemiah had been, his family had been chosen for exile. He was a person of means. He was the cupbearer to the king. In other words, the most powerful person in the world trusted his life into Nehemiah's hands. As we read through Nehemiah, we find that he finances most of the, much of the rebuilding efforts out of his own pocket. So he's wealthy. He has a decent life in exile. He doesn't have to involve himself with what's going on back home. Things are working pretty well for him in exile. In this case, and many of us know this to be true, ignorance is bliss. It's easier to just not know, not pay attention. And so some of you downplay problems and the pain in your lives because ignorance is bliss. Others of us look away when we're confronted with the great needs in our world because ignorance is bliss. It's easier. I point out the fact that Nehemiah begins with a question because he didn't have to ask the question. It may sound strange or counterintuitive, but in order to stop being overwhelmed in this life, we must begin by acknowledging, seeing clearly the things that are overwhelming us. This is what Nehemiah does. He asks the right questions. Many of us sort of just have this latent sense of being overrun by our lives, and we've not stopped and actually asked What's going on? What is the pain in my own life? Where does this come from? Nehemiah receives a devastating answer to his question, an answer that outlines for him the scope, the magnitude of the problem that exists. What what happens when we receive these answers? What is our response when we finally ask the question? Why is my family like this? Why do I get angry so quickly? Why do I struggle so much with my image of who I am? Why do these sorts of injustices continue to perpetuate themselves in our city, in our world? What is your response when you stop and actually ask the question? And then receive a devastating, a hard, a large answer. How do you respond? This is my observation. 
Some of us, we just rush into battle. Okay, that's the problem. Let's fix it. Let's take care of it. Let's take it down. Let's make it right. And we burn out and we get distracted. Others of us, as I mentioned before, become so overwhelmed, we just fade into apathy. Too much. It's too big. I don't really want to trace where this thread in my family goes. I don't want to know. They want to know what the roots of human trafficking are. I don't want to see where that goes. And so just stop. Nehemiah does neither of these things. What does he do? This brings me to the second move. First he asks, and then he grieves. This is a surprise to me because I'm bad at grieving doesn't come naturally to me. When I heard these things, he says in verse 4, I sat down and wept. For some day I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. He grieved before he did anything else. His countrymen are in trouble and disgrace. Their city walls are broken down. Its gates are burned with fire. And so Nehemiah grieved. I think this step is greatly important, and it's one that we often bypass or downplay. But you see, when we stop and we grieve, when we ask these questions that solicit these devastating answers, when our eyes are opened up to the realities around us, when we stop and when we grieve, we avoid, we avoid the equally bad options of rushing into something we're not prepared to face. We're becoming overwhelmed and frozen in place. What happens when we what happens when we stop and grieve? I think the, the number one thing that happens is that the need we initially perceived actually becomes greater, bigger, harder. And again, maybe this seems counterintuitive. But in order to move from being overwhelmed by our lives, by this world, we need to grieve. And in that process, see just how big, just how large the problems are that we are facing in our own personal lives, in our families, in our relationships, in our heart. Just how large are the problems that our neighborhoods, our worlds, our workplaces face. This is what happens when we grieve. That which initially seemed overwhelming to us only gets bigger. But there's something else that's happening as we grieve. We encounter God. You see, grief puts us in our place. Grief makes evident our inadequacy to really address and change problems that we're facing. Grief puts us in our place. And you see, when we are put in our place, we, are, we allow God to clearly be seen in his place. And so, yes, the, the thing gets bigger. The problem gets bigger. And our ability to face it shrinks. But in that process, God gets bigger and bigger and bigger 
bigger and bigger. Which is why the third move that we see Nehemiah make is worship. He acts, he grieves, and then he worships. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. Your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. Again, this surprises me. He, he moves from grief to worship seamlessly. Isn't grief incompatible with worship? I don't know what you would say to to answer that question, but I know how many of us live. This is this is the 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 litmus test, I think. Do do you feel like you got to put on like the happy face when you come to church on Sundays? You feel like you got to clean yourself up. What's the answer that you give to maybe some of your closer friends? How are you doing? How are things going? How's your life? I know how it works. I'm good. I'm okay. I'm a little busy. Reality is many of us are grieving. And yet there seems to be a disconnect between grief and worship. And yet this is what Nehemiah does. He worships out of his grief. Isn't this what Job says? In Job chapter 121, after everything has been taken away from Job, after Job has moved from sort of the perceived height of success to to the lowest of the low, Job says, the Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Worshiping out of his pain, out of his grief. Nehemiah encounters his inadequacy as he grieves. But he also encounters a God who is more than adequate. And so he worships out of his grief. Understand there's not like this clear starting and stopping point. Like grieve, I grieve, I grieve, and okay, now I worship. It's all mixed up. It's all jumbled together. This is why I think Nehemiah, as he's praying, he says, I've been praying, I've been worshiping, I've been grieving every day and every night. This is an ongoing response, an ongoing prayer. My, my guess is that Nehemiah didn't get, like, didn't get sick pay in his work. He, he didn't get vacation days. You know, he couldn't just email the king and say, uh, I've had something come up, so I'm not going to be coming in for the next few days. I'm guessing that wasn't an option. So Nehemiah is having to go about his work. Bearing the king's cup, tasting the king's food, being present for whatever the king wanted. He can't stop doing these things. And yet he says, even in that, I'm praying before you, God, day and night. Worshiping you, God, day and night. You see this? This is a heart. This is a heart that has been so compelled that it cannot stop worshiping, cannot stop praying. 
This is, this is not someone who just, okay, I've set this couple hours of time aside on a Sunday, and that's when I do my, you know, worship thing, and then the rest of the week I just kind of try to get by because I'm so overwhelmed by this world. No, this is a man who has encountered God in his grief and who cannot stop worshiping, cannot stop praying, even as he goes about his business. You see? Is this, is this how we worship? Are our hearts so captivated by God that we cannot not worship? We cannot not pray. This is, I think, what happens to Nehemiah. He encounters this incredible need that is far beyond himself. He grieves that he encounters his God and his, and his heart is captured. So he worships, he worships, he worships. The next move that he makes in verse 6 is he confesses. He asks. He grieves. Worships. And then he confesses. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself, and my ancestral family have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. I don't know about you, but this is is not my instinct. When I'm overwhelmed by life, the personal stuff in my life, the big things out there, my, my instinct is not to confess. I just want it fixed. God, just make it right. I don't want to feel this anymore. Something is happening in Nehemiah's heart as he encounters God, as he's grieving, as he's worshiping. He begins to understand something incredibly important, and it's this. The problem isn't just out there. The problem is in here, too. Nehemiah, cupbearer king, his life is going great. He's, he's, a, he's a fairly privileged person leading a, leading a decent life. He has no real contact with what's going on in Jerusalem. And yet, even Nehemiah comes to say, I'm caught up in this. I'm implicated in this. The source of what is happening in Jerusalem, the source of this problem, this devastation, this suffering, in some way involves my own wicked heart. He identifies himself with his people. He identifies himself with the source of their grief and their suffering. He confesses before God that he doesn't come before God with clean hands and a pure heart. This is the warning for us this morning. If we choose to pursue Nehemiah's example, if we choose to engage our own issues, problems, the problems of our world, the way Nehemiah does, if we follow his path, you will be brought to confess. You will see how you are tied up in this problem that you care about, this problem that is affecting your life. Do you want to see God heal your broken family? Do you want to see God liberate 
victims of human trafficking? Do you want to see God bring about change in our schools? Do you want to see God replace violence with peace in our streets? Do you want to see our community, our church, genuinely experience the type of authentic community we talk about? If you do, if these are problems that matter to you, like Nehemiah, you will be brought to the place where you fall on your knees and you say, I am in just as much need of God's work than any problem out there. Nehemiah says, my my ancestral family, myself, I am tied up in this God. I'm not innocent of this. I need you to do work in me even as you do work out there. In every instance, as we grieve and as we worship, we will be led to confession and to repentance. Is that, I can't read you guys. How does that sound to you? How does that sound to you? This idea of being implicated come to see our need for God to do a work in us such that we confess and repent. How does that sound to you? A good opportunity? Hmm? What did somebody say? So quiet. Hmm? Honest. What else? Like how he does it with his ancestral family, is that what you mean? Mm-hmm. Okay. Can you talk a little bit louder? What do you mean by that, by survival mode? Mm. I see, yeah. Yeah, that's all. Confession, repentance is at the heart of what it means to be someone who follows Jesus. There's there's no entry point into our relationship with Christ aside from confession and repentance. Confessing our own sinfulness, our own ability to rescue ourselves, turning away from that and giving ourselves to God. That this is the heart of who we are as Christian people. And yet, 
most of the time we leave that behind. We think it's the front door. Okay, I confessed my sins and now I'm in, I'm good. And so now I'm just going like, to act like I've got my stuff together. And we stop this rhythm of confession and repentance. And time and time again throughout church history, we have seen that when the Holy Spirit radically moves among a people, it's because they are willing to confess and repent. To quit the charade. To be able to say that, no, the need is not just out there. It's in here. And yet, as Christine said, it can be hard to see how we are tied up in this. This is why I think the grieving is so important. Because this is when this happens for Nehemiah. As he grieves what he hears, as he begins to worship his God, this is when he begins to see. This is when the Holy Spirit grabs him and says, Nehemiah, it's you too. I want to do something in you too. I want to rescue you too. I want to heal you too. I want to change your life as well. I don't know if our church is that kind of church or not. I don't know if we're kind of people who are willing to live into this rhythm together or not. This rhythm of confession and repentance. Pushing away, walking away, renouncing this idea of having to have it all together. I don't know. I pray that we are. I get glimpses of it. I hear stories in community groups at times, at times when we're praying together. I see glimpses of this. This is the path that Nehemiah is laying out for us. If we as a community are not going to be overwhelmed by this world, not going to just be sitting on the sidelines, but are going to really be engaging the mission that God has called us to, it will involve our willingness to say, God, change me too. Heal me too. Forgive me too. Here's the next move that he makes. In verse 8, he loves. Remember the instruction you gave to your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are on the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. They are your servants. This is Nehemiah's language is seasoned with love for those who are in Jerusalem. His, his language is, is, is seasoned with compassion and love and caring for those who, who, who are experiencing what it means to live in a city with no walls, the humiliation of that, the vulnerability of that. He he loves these people. This is so huge because something happens here where Nehemiah no longer has a problem to solve. He has people to love. This is not just an abstract thing that needs fixing. Something that is wrong in the world that needs a solution. Some tip or trick or technique that he can figure out that, that will then set all things right. No, these are people. These are men. These are women who are suffering. 
So he doesn't have a problem that he's got to fix, a problem to solve. God, would you just make this right? No, these are people that he brings before God. God, remember your people who you made a covenant to. So do do you love? Does your heart love? Are the problems that you know, are are the challenges in your life, are they abstract things that need to be solved or do you love the people involved in them? See, we, we can get real overwhelmed when our problems, when our issues, when our challenges, when they remain abstract. They take on a life of their own. Something shifts dramatically, though, when our hearts begin to see that, no, no, we're talking about people. People who have known pain, who have known suffering. People who are as wicked as I am, yes. Who need Jesus just as much as I do, yes. But people. People created in the image of God. People created to know God and to be known by God. Are your problems problems or are they people? People who God loves. People who Christ gave his life for. And here's the last thing that he does. Verse 11, he asks, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayers of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. I think that this, like most of us, this is where we start. We kind of short circuit this whole process. Here's this need. God, I'm coming to you. Would you, would you fix it, please? We short circuit all of that Nehemiah does, you see? Nehemiah, he grieves, he worships, he confesses, he loves, and now he asks. Many of us, we just go, we just ask. And hey, thanks be to God that God is gracious and answers our prayers, that there's not a formula that we have to follow. His request comes at the end of this process, and I think this process deeply informs his request. two things that I notice about Nehemiah's prayer of petition. The first is that he just prays for the next step. I mean, I think we would agree that the need that he has encountered is overwhelming. A city that needs its walls rebuilt. A people who needs their identity restored. It's an overwhelming problem. What does Nehemiah pray for? God, I'm going to go before the king. And would you grant me favor with that? That's it. That's it. That's his entire prayer. That should be good news to some of you. I mean, there's this overwhelming situation. It's huge. It could be debilitating him. He might just turn away in apathy or just charge into it without thinking it through. But instead, he goes through this process, and at the end of it, he says, okay, would you give me favor for this next step? Period. That's it. Just that. Just that. I'm going to go before the king. Would you give me favor? 
And my guess is that after God grants him favor in this request, then he looks at the next step, and then he looks at the next step, and then he looks at the next step. But so many of us jump like from step one to step, I don't know, one million. Right? And so we don't take any steps. We don't pray for any next steps. We don't ask for favor for any next steps. Nehemiah says this one thing. God, would answer this. I'll take this step. And, and this is the second thing that I notice is that Nehemiah begins to see that he may be part of the answer to his own prayer. This is not like an abstract prayer, right? Like, God, here's this problem, and if you could just fix it. God, my school that I teach in is in a mess. If you could just fix it, please. God, my, the, the violence in my neighborhood is just too much. If you could just fix it, please. God, my, 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 my father and all of his issues and the way it's impacting me, it's just, if you could just fix it. Mm-mm. It's not this abstract prayer. It's, God, I, I, I'll, I'll take this next step. I'll go before the king. And it's too big for me. That's not something I can do on my own. But God, I'll I'll take that next step. Nehemiah's life is going to be changed dramatically through this process. His identity is going to shift from being cupbearer to the king to leader of his people, the builder of broken walls. His life at times is going to feel like it's been wrecked. He's being attacked when he's having to push away those who are trying to discredit him. His life is going to be upended. And it starts with this step. So on the one hand, there's some good news here. What's what's the one step? What's the one step that God is asking you to take? What is the one step where you can pray for God's favor as you address the things that are overwhelming you in your life? Oh, but the flip side of that is, are you willing for your life to be upended in the process? Are you willing to be radically changed in the process? Are you willing to relinquish control of your future in the process? Are you willing to be turned into somebody who's different than when you started in the process? Are you willing to have your life wrecked in the process? Are you willing to find your identity somewhere else in the process? You see? The same coin is two different sides. It's one step, but it's one step that Nehemiah is taking in prayer. Jesus, when uh, his disciples come to him, and worship team, go ahead and, and come on up. Uh, uh, Jesus, when his disciples come to him and say, teach us how to pray. Um, remember the Lord's Prayer, many of you. One of the, one of the uh, phrases towards the beginning of it is, is, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Right? You remember that? Your kingdom come. Now, I want to suggest to you that there is really no bigger prayer in all of the Bible than that. God, your kingdom come. God, make things right. God, our world is messed up, and it will not be, will not be made right until you come in all of your fullness. Your kingdom come. Jesus says, pray for that. There's nothing bigger that we could pray for. There's nothing more overwhelming that we're being invited to participate in than that. God, your kingdom come. It's huge. It's way too big for us, which is probably why most of us don't pray this way most of the time. When was the last time that you prayed sincerely, God, bring your kingdom? God, come, 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 come. Bring your kingdom. We don't pray like that, right? It's too big. It's too much. It's too out there. 
in Matthew, after Jesus has been baptized, he's been, been in the wilderness, he comes out, and some of the first words that he uses as he begins his public ministry, very simply, he says, repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So on the, other, on the one hand, we have Jesus saying to his disciples, pray for this thing that is way too big. It's, it's, it's way beyond you. It's the biggest thing that you ever pray for. It addresses the greatest needs that this world has ever known. Pray for that. It's impossible. On the other hand, because Jesus has come, the answer is already coming. Pray for your kingdom to come. Oh, by the way, in Jesus, the kingdom has already come near. You see? It's the great news. This is what we encounter as we begin to push into the things that overwhelm us in our life. That we're not the only ones that care about them. That God is already at work there. That Christ gave himself for that. That redemption is available even in the midst of those things. The mess that you've made of your life or that your family has made of your life. God is present situations that are out there that are too big, that feel overwhelming, completely unjust. God is present and at work there. And so Jesus says, pray for your kingdom to come. But by the way, guys, it's already coming in me because I'm here. I don't think you all get it. Do you see how good this is? I'm not convinced. I don't think you see this, church. Because if this is true, there's nothing. There's nothing too big for us to encounter. There's nothing too overwhelming in this life if this is true. Your kingdom come. The kingdom of heaven has come near. There's nothing too big. There's nothing too overwhelming. There's nowhere that Christ isn't present. Your kingdom come. My kingdom is coming. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here in just a minute. We're going to come forward. You're going to break some bread, dip it in the cup. And this is, what we're, this is what we're commemorating today. This is what we're remembering. This is what we're celebrating today. Is this grace. That, oh yes, many of us live this life as overwhelmed people. It doesn't have to be that way. That, that we have been uh, saved and liberated and rescued, not just to try to make it through this life, but to engage this world to engage the great needs, the great problems in our own lives, but in our own world, in our world as well. And that Christ will be there too. Break the bread and dip it in the cup, and I pray that you're reminded today of what God has done for you. On the cross, Jesus gave his life for us. So we feast on this. We're nourished on the Lord's Supper today. But we're nourished in very specific ways the things that are overwhelming us in this life, for the things that have sidelined us, for the things that have bound us up, tied us up, we're nourished for that. There's freedom from that today. Somebody say amen if you're with me. Yes. So feast today on the Lord's Supper. Rejoice and celebrate what God has done for us. Be reminded that the things that overwhelm you don't have to overwhelm you forever, that there is healing, that there is hope available for you even now, even today. Be reminded that the great needs of our world are needs that God has placed on your heart for a reason, that you will be the person that says, I, like Nehemiah, am willing to take just the next step, and then just the next step after that, and then the next step after that, and 20, 30 years from now, you look behind and you go, what? What? 
What has God accomplished? What has God accomplished? Amen? I said, worship team, come up. I didn't say it loud enough. Worship team, come on up. Come on up. Lord, we come to you as people uh, incredibly grateful for the the work that you have done through Jesus. We thank you that uh, there is hope, there's healing, there's salvation available now. Lord, we thank you that though we maybe have been overwhelmed, that we do not have to be overwhelmed. We thank you that there are no abstract problems out there. There are people who you love, who you've called us to. God, I pray especially for those this morning who are being aware of the very personal things in their lives that have overwhelmed them, that have frozen them up, that have tied them up. I pray for healing today. I pray that you would help them to grieve these things today, to not rush past them, but to sit with you and grieve allowing their own inadequacy to be seen and your power to be seen even more clearly. Pray that you would be making it into a confessing people, a repenting people, a people who do not pretend to have our stuff together, who fake it, who act as though we cannot be both people who grieve and worship at the same time. Help us to be a confessing people who are quick in community to say, this, this is where I'm off track. This is where there is hardness in my heart. This is where there's idolatry. This is where I'm tied up with a problem that is so besetting in my life. Help us to receive these confessions, this repentance with grace and offer words of assurance and forgiveness. So church, this morning I invite you to come to the sacred table, not because you must, but because you may. Come to testify, not that you are righteous, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciples. Come not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Not because you have any claim on the grace of God, but because in your frailty and sin, you stand in need of God's mercy help. Come not to express an opinion, but to seek God's presence. Pray for the Holy Spirit. I invite you to say this prayer of confession with me. Brent will put up here on the screen. Most merciful God, we confess that we sinned against you in thought word and deed, by what we have done, by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. We confess our sins. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May Almighty God have mercy on us, forgive us all our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ, strengthen us in all goodness by the power of the Holy Spirit. Keep us in eternal life. 
And now before you come, hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body. That is, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so I invite you to come as you're ready. Our worship team will be leading us. I think our prayer team may be available off to the side to pray for you. If there are places that need healing in your life, that need restoration in your life, have them pray for you. Then come, take a piece of the bread, the body of Christ, dip it in the cup, blood of Christ, and be reminded that in this act, everything else is overwhelmed. Everything else is overwhelmed. Everything else is overwhelmed. Amen? Amen. Come when you're ready. Two quick announcements. Um, uh, uh, I can't help it. John White turned 30 yesterday, so we needed, like, we don't, you know, get to celebrate all the birthdays in our church, but um, I want to honor John for his leadership, his service to our church. Uh, Anne is here. He's always the first one here every single Sunday morning. I try to beat him. I got here like 10 minutes early today, and he's out front like, you know. So I want to honor you, John. Thank you for your service, your leadership in our church. Uh, the, other, the other thing uh, is that uh, Josh and Emily are back today, and they are recently married. So we congratulate you guys. They're back in the back in the shadows. There, two, uh, two. Are you at two weeks at this point ish? Two weeks of marriage. So, um, join us for lunch after the service. Especially if you're a visitor today, you didn't bring any food. Join us, please, please, please. You would be our guest. You will not sit by yourself. You know, you won't. You'll have people talking to you. Interested, right, church? Right, right, right. So uh, please join us, hang out afterwards. Those of you who know how to help clean up the stage, if you could join us immediately after, jump up on the stage and help these guys uh, get cleaned up so that they can join us uh, for lunch. Now, here's the benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you without blemish before the presence of his glory with rejoicing, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. And the church said, amen, amen. Go in peace. See you at lunch.